My name is Matt Hergy. This week, Alberta Opposition Leader Danielle Smith, along with NDP Leader Brian Mason, held a public debate at the University of Alberta. It was the kickoff to a nine-debate series that will make stops at universities and colleges across the province. It's an attempt to engage in a dialogue with young people about the direction of this province. Quote, With the PC dynasty on the ropes, we're bringing you a championship matchup that could put it down for the count. A statement by the Wild Rose read, It's safe to say that the Wild Rose Party and the NDP exist on two very different sides of the political spectrum. Which got us to thinking, are we getting the wool pulled over our eyes? Is this some sort of political ploy? A tactic to get young people talking about politics in Alberta again? According to Danielle Smith, yes. That's exactly what it is. That's what makes politics interesting, is when you have different people looking at the same set of facts, coming to different conclusions, and have an opportunity to try to persuade the, the, the audience that one view is the direction we should go versus the other. It's the CJSR This is the CJSR edition, broadcasting from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on 88.5 FM and cjsr.com. This week on the CJSR edition, broadcasting on 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on cjsr.com, we proudly present Bridging the Divide. Two stories about people seemingly worlds apart coming together for the greater good. Later on in the show, in the lead up to the public debate that Danielle Smith and Brian Mason had at the University of Alberta, we here at the CJSR edition brought the two leaders into our studios and hosted a debate of our own. Only this one features a little bit of radio magic to kick things up a notch. We have to have a change in this province. If you vote for the Wild Rose, you're gonna be jumping out of the frying pan right into the fire. But first, in the wake of fee increases for international students at the University of Alberta, students across campus are mobilizing to protest what they believe is unfair, unnecessary gouging. Hey guys, international students. Look at your tuition fee, see what happened, and look around if you have any concerns, just speak out, just like talk to people, just, yeah, speak out, international students, share some power. This is the CJSR edition. Stay with us. Welcome back to the CJSR edition. A group of students at the University of Alberta is mobilizing alongside the Students' Union to protect international students from unfair fee increases. Students' Union President Petros Kusmu has come to these students' defense, arguing that international student fees are vulnerable to exploitation. CJSR's Trevor Chow Frazier spoke with the organizers of the fee protest, two young Chinese women, about the lack of transparency when it comes to their fees. On a sunny September evening, I watched a room at the University of Alberta slowly fill up with an unusually multicultural crowd. There were representatives from a range of international student clubs, Indian, Arab, Chinese, African, 
The gathering had been arranged to discuss an urgent concern common to everyone present, the recent unannounced and surprise increase to the university's international student fees. Hey, uh, my name is Zhu Jiewang. I'm, you can call me Vivian because it's hard to pronounce my Chinese name. Obviously, I'm from China. Uh, I'm a third year business student, accounting major. Okay, I'm Zhao Yi, no English name, sorry. I'm in Faculty of Arts, studying psychology and economics, uh, third year, yeah. Why we raise up this meeting is because we, we noticed there's a unannounced and unexpected international student tuition increase for this academic year. Can you tell me about uh, when you started to look for information about the increase, could you tell me about you know how difficult that search was? Oh, it's really difficult. So basically, we found some information on the U, U of A's website, but it's very limited. And also, like most of the information we collected from the individual person, because like for me, like I compare my breakdowns of tuition fees for the 2013 winter term and 2013 fall term. So you can see there's an increase and because I have some questions, I even went to the administration office and let them to like disclose some information. But they said, oh, we can only look at your fees, but there's no access to other international student fees. So basically, we just collected information for an individual person and found some information on the tuition website. And also trying to reach out to our fans yeah, and friends. to get some personal data. And from that, uh, we collected some, do some calculus and to get this number. Uh. Vivian and Zhao Yi had to cobble together this estimate of their own student fees because the administration does not publish the calculation themselves. This is something that really concerns the two students. The U of A, they don't have, like, they don't disclose the policy of how to calculate those international differential fees. So because it's not available to us, they, like, there's ways they can, like, charge more fees for us without giving us some explanation. So, and also, like, we cannot check it by ourselves as well. So we really want, like, university can disclose those, this kind of information and the policies as well. And, yeah. So do you feel like, given the lack of transparency about how your fees are calculated, yeah. do you feel like you international students are being taken advantage of by the University of Alberta? Uh, we, we, we don't we, think... <laughs> it feels like if they give us some reasonable explanations, we may accept it. The University of Alberta is one of the best universities in the world, and we expect more from the university as well. Like, I think they should be transparent yeah. and open to their the students, public, to the students, to the public and the students, and let us know how do they like calculate those fees and let us to be involved in. What we are doing here is not against the university. We're 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 part of this university. Yeah. We want to uh, to make it better in the future. So I think Vivian and Jawi have received the support of the Students' Union in their attempt to organize international students. The union president, Petros Kuzmo, has been concerned about a lack of investment in Alberta's post-secondary education system. And he is concerned that international students will soon be asked to help make up for the deficit. In, in terms of how international student fees are calculated, um, international students pay tuition like everyone else does, but they also pay something called an international differential fee. That fee is based off of an international differential fee multiplier. And that multiplier right now is something like two point something percent. So they pay, um, let's say tuition is $5,000. They have Their international fee is two times of that. So they have to pay $5,000 plus $10,000, which equates to a total of $15,000. They're essentially paying three times as much, right? Um, so that's pretty much how the math works out, and that's been consistent. The thing is, it, tuition is regulated, right? But international students don't have the international differential fee being regulated. So at any point in time, institutions can increase the fee to whatever they want to. And we've, start, we've started to see that as some of the other Albertan post-secondary education institutions. For instance, the University of Lethbridge actually, during the summer, really increased their international student fee, which is 
Petros explained that the situation at the University of Alberta was slightly different. International students did not experience a dramatic hike in their fees, but neither did they enjoy the tuition freeze that domestic students received. Instead, international student fees increased moderately to match the rate of inflation. Um, but my big fear isn't so much for this year, but it's what's going to happen for next year. The university is now incentivizing faculties, um, in my opinion, to increase international students' tuition. Th why? Because the international deferential fee, that $10,000, let's say an international student pays to the institution, it gets split up in different ways. Um, I don't have it off the top of my head, but something like 30% of it goes to the, maybe the faculty, another 30% goes to the provost's office, which funds stuff like libraries and other stuff, and let's say another 30% goes to University of Alberta International. From my understanding, um, the provost's office is saying, you know what, faculties, you'll get something like 60%. So now faculties have a greater incentive to actually increase the international student differential fee, and the institution has made it quite clear that they're going to rely on it more. Proponents of increased reliance on funding from international tuition argue that Canadian students pay through their taxes and that international students are only paying their fair share. But Petros explained that this isn't actually true anymore. Currently as it stands, it's not like the institution loses money by accepting international students, right? Because the argument they make is like, well, the government's only covering enough you know, giving us enough cash just to cover the domestic students. Right. The government is, get, isn't doing that, right? They're just giving you a lump sum of cash. So there's no, like, direct financial relationship between yeah, and the, taxes being paid and, and there's the and, of money. And currently, with the funding model that the institutions have, um, there's no direct consequence by having um, more international students. It's a huge incentive, and that's why you're starting to see institutions focus a lot more on recruiting international students. We're seeing that at UBC, we're seeing that at U of T, obviously. Um, UFC last year at a town hall, I believe their president announced something like, you know, we're going to stop, we're going to cap how many, how many domestic students we take next year, and we're going to make sure we increase how many international students we take. Back at the forum, I was wondering how international students could handle a big hike in their tuition fees. I approached some of those present to find out how they felt about it. Oh, hi. Uh, my name is Yves. I'm from the uh, Chinese Compassion and Relief Youth Group. I'm the current president and uh, also a fourth-year materials engineering student. And uh, like I'm from, I'm originally from Taiwan. So I was wondering, um, with these hikes in the international uh, student tuition, has that affected you? Uh, it does actually. It does increase. It does uh, affect my tuition because I've seen like it does increase, like about seven, seven, uh, seven hundred, something like that. So like on top of CPI. So. How much are you used to paying? Uh, well, excluding scholarships and stuff, and uh, I'm pay. I paid. Um, I think, twenty-one thousand last year. So. Okay. Yeah. I also spoke to another member of the Chinese youth group. Helen described finding herself in a much more precarious situation than Eve. For her and her friends, there is a personal cost to rising international tuition fees. Hi, I'm Helen, and I'm international from China, and I'm second year in mathematics. Uh, how, how much is your tuition? Uh, it's about... I, I just have four uh, courses registered, and uh, my tuition is already like nine thousand. Like uh, last year, it would be like two thousand lower, lower than that. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> so you say that you've been worried about this. Can you tell me a bit about how you feel right now? Um, actually, the tuition fee is like. Actually, we even talk about this during the summertime because all all my friends maybe we just we're more care about like fees and because we're we're not the rich part and, and um, we maybe get a job and uh, we have uh, our scholarships. But if the fee increases and the scholarship is still at that lower point, it will affect us. So, can can you tell me what it means to you and to your parents? when the tuition increases? Yeah, because um, when I came to Canada, they, they moved to Beijing to get a 
like better work and they don't really have a place to live they just rent for one if the tuition fee actually increases they would have to like work more harder or even not really like to get that point to by working harder so we we have to work here and find more opportunity to get that money to like to fix that gap so it's a little hard for us so we, we do really care <laughs> Uh -huh. Have you, or you said some of your friends have been working themselves as uh, well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do have some of my friends. They, they didn't really go back to China this summer because they need more like uh, money to cover the tuition fees. So they just work here for the whole summer and uh, like two or three part-time jobs to cover the fees. So it's a little hard. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, what kind of jobs are those? Because um, we're undergraduate, we don't really have a like, degree for like better jobs. It's just uh, working in restaurant and malls and to, like, you know, that like McDonald's things. Because like it's not all of the students there like from rich family and come here to, to make a golden cover for business. And there are also some students that are in science, engineering, and they want to do more for their family because their family are not rich. So it's like both sides, are, they're not really equal. And we, we need more care for this like um, side is not really that rich, but uh, trying to work hard, yeah. It's clear that international students consider this to be a kind of human rights issue. They don't want to be driven into poverty in order to gain a quality education. I don't think that most Albertans would see it the same way, however. I asked Petros Kuzmo, Students' Union President, what he would tell Albertans to build support for the cause of international students. Most Albertans, right, we want to be able to live in a world-class province. I mean, so if we're striving to become a world-class province, territory, city, then bringing in international students is a large part of that equation. It starts with having world-class talent, and it starts with having a diverse amount of cultures, someone that can make your, your environment rich, right? My experience here in Edmonton and at the UVA has been rich because I felt like I've had an international experience at home. And I feel like for a lot of Edmontonians and Albertans, um, I feel like they feel the same way. So the second you're saying, well, you know, you know, we value all these things, you know, the fact that Canada is a cultural mosaic, but, but no, they should pay their way into our country. Then it's, it's sending two very different messages, right? And you're not becoming a very welcoming city. And, you know, it's, it's working against your own objectives for making Edmonton and Alberta an amazing place. Um, at the end of the day, Canadians and Edmontonians and Albertans care more about um, having a better quality of life than making sure that someone can pay their way in. So, For CGSR News, my, I'm Trevor Chow Fraser. That piece was produced by CJSR's Trevor Chow Fraser. You're tuned to the CJSR edition. This week, we proudly present Bridging the Divide. And we'll be back after this short break. You're listening to the CJSR edition on 88.5 FM in Edmonton, 102.7 Cable FM, and around the world on cjsrnews.com. Welcome back to the CJSR edition. For the past 42 years, the Progressive Conservative Party has held an uninterrupted monopoly on provincial politics in Alberta. But recently, in light of a struggling economy and budget shortfalls, among other things, many Albertans have become increasingly disenchanted with the PC government and have started to look elsewhere. More interestingly is where these no longer progressive conservatives have thrown their support. The political discourse in the province has become fragmented with some Albertans advancing to the more right side of the political spectrum in support of the Wild Rose Party, while others have begun to shift their political perspectives to the left in support of the New Democratic Party. This week, in an attempt to plead their case, 
Danielle Smith and Brian Mason, leaders of the Wild Rose Party and NDP respectively, held a debate at the University of Alberta. It was the first in a series that will be staged at post-secondary institutions across Alberta in the next coming months. So, seizing the opportunity, we here at CJSR decided to stage our own sort of debate between the two leaders. The only thing that would be different about our debate would be that neither leader would be able to hear the opponent's responses. We invited each leader into our studios individually, and then we asked them the same set of questions. And utilizing the magic of radio, we put their answers side by side. Here are Brian Mason and Danielle Smith in a no-holds-barred debate, CJSR edition style. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure, it's, I'm Danielle Smith, I'm leader of the Wild Rose Party, as well as the leader of the official opposition and the MLA for Highwood. I'm Brian Mason, I'm the leader of the Alberta NDP. What was your motivation to get involved with provincial politics? Well, I'd been involved on uh, city council for a number of years. I served, uh, um, well, three and a half terms. Uh, then there was a vacancy uh, in my constituency when the uh, NDP leader and MLA at the time, Pam Barrett, resigned. So uh, I had been working in municipal politics, and I began to realize that most of the important decisions that affected our work on city council in the city of Edmonton uh, depended on the provincial government. They're the big funders. They're the people that set the set the rules with the municipal uh, uh, government act and so on. So I thought it was a natural pro progression. I'd been 11 and a half years on Edmonton City Council and s things were, you know, there's always new stuff, but there was a lot of stuff I'd, I'd done before and uh, I wanted to uh, move on to something that would, would bring some different experiences. I would say that my interest in politics came from university. I remember taking a political science course early on, and then I joined the campus club for the Progressive Conservatives in my last year of university. Liked it so much, I ran for president of the campus club. I was successful, and it was the year 92-93, which was also the year of a federal leadership race, a provincial leadership race, the Charlottetown Accord national referendum, then a provincial election and a federal election. So within about 16 months, there were five different elections. And I think after that, I was pretty well hooked and knew that I wanted to get into politics after that. It was a real hotbed of time. It really was, and I have to say, when I look back on my influences in, in politics, a lot of it comes from that era. I uh, probably won't surprise you that Margaret Thatcher is one of the, the heroes that I, I look to as a strong woman leader at a, at a time when there was actually not very many female leaders in, in, uh, uh, in the Western world. And looking at some of her history and what she went through. And then, of course, Ralph Klein had come to leadership then on this mix, I think, of not only being a fiscal conservative, but also being a conservative who cares. Uh, Preston Manning had a, an approach where he believed not only in fiscal conservative principles, but also in the importance of grassroots democracy. And so a lot of those influences, I think you, you'll see in the way I lead the Wild Rose Party today. And I'm glad that the Wild Rose has those kind of values. It's what attracted me to the, the party in the first place. What are the tenets of your political philosophies? Well, I think that um, the policy, the, the, the vision of the NDP is to have a province in which there is prosperity, but that it's shared and not just for half the population. So uh, we want to make sure that uh, families get what they need, that they have access to post-secondary education, for example, we're, we think it's being priced out of the range of many young people, many families. Um, people, as they get older, have aging parents, and that's a, that's a big concern, that they're really well taken care of and can live in dignity, and, and that that doesn't break the bank. Things like car insurance, um, you know, it's expensive, utilities are, are very high. All of those things impact the, uh, the average family that may not be super wealthy, and we think that making life affordable for people is a key thing, making sure that people have access to the services they need, for example, healthcare and education are critical things and we want to maintain a clean environment for future generations that's something that I think uh, is very very lacking in this province and needs a lot more attention than it's getting 
I would say I, I, I've described myself as a libertarian, but a lot of people don't know what that means. I, I tend to think of it as somebody who values liberty. I, I value the, uh, the, the, the role of the individual to take care of themselves, their families, and their communities without a lot of interference. I look at the role of government as being a, a last resort, not a first resort. Very important to have a social safety net there, but I, I tend to believe that if you actually give, if you empower people in communities to take care of themselves, they will do a very, very good job of being able to meet most of the needs of their community. And it's important for government when it is there and when it does need to be there that it, it operates and functions well. Part of the concern that I have with the current government is that it is one of the richest governments that we have in Canada it ha on a per capita basis for the amount of revenues that it gets in. And yet if you look at the way it delivers social programs, the, the way that it takes care of the neediest, there are still people who are falling through the cracks. They have a, a difficult time prioritizing the, the need-to-haves versus the nice-to-dos. And I think you see a lot of that, especially in the, in the most recent years, as we've now seen that our royalty revenues are off what, from what their expectations are. And the response of the government is to cut where it hurts the most, which is on the front lines. We, we think that there's a better way of doing government. And that's why we're uh, putting forward an alternative to this government that's been in power for over 40 years. A recent study by Dan Cahan at Yale University called Motivated Numeracy and Enlightened Self-Government argues that one's involvement in politics and partisanship can even undermine their very basic reasoning skills. In your experience, do you think that this is true in some way? I think it can be true of political parties, which is why we've taken a bit of a different approach. And you do see in parties that have strict party discipline that the, the role of the individual elected representative to truly represent their constituents is diminished. But in our party, we have uh, we have an approach where we, we have a common set of values, a set of principles that is in our Constitution. We do have a policy book that gets vetted and put by our members every single year, but we also have this understanding that if there is an issue that so conflicts with our, what our constituents want us to do, that each MLA has to be able to have a free vote to properly represent their constituents. And what I've been delighted to see is that uh, even though we do have free votes, uh, most of the time, our members agree with one another. That shouldn't be surprising because we do share a common set of values, but sometimes they don't. And they, when they feel very strongly about an issue, they vote in the interest of their constituents, and the world hasn't come to an end because sometimes we disagree with each other. I, I tend to take the view that reasonable people can look at the same set of facts and come to different conclusions. And so I think you need to be able to have that freedom in a legislative environment so that you can have robust debate, so that people feel like they can come forward with contrary views, and that we can have that, that uh, more open sharing and vetting of ideas. I think it leads to better decisions. That's how we conduct ourselves as a caucus. And I'd like to see more of that in the legislature. <laughs> no, I don't. You know, you lots of professors write lots of stuff. Um, but I think that um, it evolves out of the type of political system we have. It's based on with political parties. It is designed from the ground up as a partisan or as a adversarial political system and I think that debate is a good thing um, but uh, obviously some people um, listen more carefully and are more discerning in in listening to what politicians uh, say and can shift out uh, you know the the wheat from the chaff um, better than others but I, I don't think you know those are the kinds of things that are decided uh, based on some academic study they're based on the political realities that we have in our country what is the best and worst decision you made as a politician? Well, um, I think uh, that's a really good, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think perhaps the worst decision I made was when I was on city council and I was persuaded to vote for the South Edmonton Common the plan and the transportation plan and I was very much against it but I was the only one on council and I was finally persuaded to go along and uh, I regret that even though my vote wouldn't have changed anything um, I look at that and I see a big mess I see millions and millions of dollars that the city's had to pay to fix the traffic problems that have been created all the overpasses all of that kind of stuff um, and we were I think um, 
I will say I felt misled by the developer uh, about what was going on. So, you know, that's that's just one thing um, that comes to mind because uh, because I've always every time I drive by it, I regret uh, casting a vote for it. In terms of the best decisions that I made, I think probably the decision to get into politics in the first place. When I first wanted to run for city council, um, I wasn't allowed to because I was a city employee. I drove a bus for the city, and, and the legislation said if you work for the city, you couldn't run for city council. So I challenged it. I took it to court. I made a charter challenge and lost that, and uh, so then I was really faced with the dilemma. In the end, I resigned my job in order to run for city council, but was elected, and uh, I found it very rewarding. I feel that I've, you know, helped hundreds of people um, and saved millions of dollars for taxpayers along the way. Since Alberta was founded in 1905, who has been Alberta's best politician? Of our history. I, you know, I have to say I've got um, a lot of respect. I, I do try to read up on on history as much as I can. I'm a big a big fan of Alberta history and there's just so many things that we've seen that have been positive from each of our political leaders. When I go back and look for instance at John Brownlee who was a, a UFA premier, he brought through our Natural Resources Transfer Act which was absolutely crucial in being able to put Alberta on a stage where we could control our resource development. A, a very crucial decision. When you look at um, Ernest Manning, probably one of the most ethical men leading one of the most ethical governments in probably the history of Canada. The, I think there was one scandal in the time that he was in and it was that one of his MLAs got a divorce. That gives you some idea of what of, of the kind of approach the, these folks took to, to political life and once again saw us through an important uh, phase getting us up to the point where we were moving through being an agriculture-based economy to one where we had a greater amount of urban population paving the way of course for Peter Lougheed and he did amazing things for the this province, making us a, a true energy superpower, putting aside money in the Heritage Savings Trust Fund. If only people subsequent to him had been able to, to continue to reinvest in that fund, it, uh, we would be in a very different position today. Ralph Klein recognizing the challenge that you can't just keep on borrowing because you end up having to pay interest payments that erode your ability to pay for core social spending. He took some very tough decisions in the 90s, but I think it set us well to be able to to do some reinvestment in the areas that were of of core priority for Albertans and uh, I think we've had trouble with the last couple of premiers frankly I think that um, Mr. Stelmack made some major missteps in bringing through a massive change to our royalty structure without understanding the impact it was going to have on investment but he did create a new relationship with our municipalities, where our municipalities have long-term stable funding. I think that's very positive. And uh, uh, Ms. Redford, it, it remains to be seen what her legacy will be. I think it'll, it'll likely be a legacy of debt, which of course is quite different than what our party would propose. But I, I have to say she is, um, she is uh, uh, championing our energy industry on the international stage, which is good for all of us. A, a strong energy economy is one that uh, generates the resource revenues that allow us to be able to continue to support our, pro our social programs and have a high quality of life. So on that front, I, I have, haven't had uh, any complaints. I, I can see something positive about each of the, the leaders that we've had, but I would say my, my, my personal favorite is Ralph Klein. <laughs> Throughout history. Okay, well then I can safely exclude myself. Uh, and uh, I would probably guess that the best politician, um, or I guess the one that I admire, um, uh, was Grant Notley. And if it had not been for his untimely death, I think he would have led the first NDP government in Alberta. He was well on his way. If you were faced with a provincial budgetary deficit, like the one we are faced with today, what would be your course of action? Well, we mapped that out in the in the election as part of our platform. This deficit was created by the Conservatives because when Ralph Klein was the Premier, he cut corporate taxes and they've been cutting them ever since uh, from a, uh, an effective rate of 16% of profits uh, down now to about 10%. And they imposed a flat tax, which meant uh, massive tax cuts for very wealthy people. Both those decisions have cost us billions of dollars. And quite frankly, if we were collecting the same level of taxation that, that um, other provinces were, um, we wouldn't have a deficit. I, I would do what I just said. I would, re re would reverse those tax cuts. Um, and um, 
and, and make sure that we're paying for um, the social services, the health care, the education that we all need and can take advantage of. Uh, I think the, the failure of the government to do that just shows that they put the interests of their wealthy and corporate friends ahead of ordinary Alberta families, and that needs to change. What is your stance on the oil sands development? Well, our, our position is that uh, oil sands development uh, needs to proceed more slowly in a staged way uh, with much more stringent environmental safeguards and monitoring and, and enforcement. Um, and that we need to um, upgrade and process the bitumen here in Alberta before we export it because that creates jobs uh, and permanent jobs, long-term jobs. Um, I think if we, could, if we could clean up our act environmentally, um, then the uh, international attack on Alberta's reputation would be more difficult uh, you know, to make, um, and I think we'd be in a better position to market our products. Having said that, we need to use um, royalties from the oil sands, and, and we would certainly increase the royalties. Um, uh, in order to fund research and development for renewable energy. We're going to have to make a switch to renewable energy at some point, but the government has its head in the sands, uh, head in the oil sands, and, and um, is refusing to recognize that at some point in the future, and may, may not be that many years away, we won't be able to sell our oil because the world, world won't buy it, and the world is moving uh, past us into renewable energy in China and the United States and Europe is, is light years ahead. Um, we're excellently positioned for wind and solar in this province and we need to start developing those resources and developing the technology um, uh, to, move, uh, to move away from oil and gas. What is the balance that needs to be struck, if any, between economic growth and environmental sustainability? Yes, and I think we do. And I think that the energy industry is becoming more and more aware that we do not have a social license to be able to develop our product if we don't do it in a way that our customers feel confident in, that our, that our, our workers in the industry feel confident in. But I would have to say that we have nothing to be embarrassed about in our industry. When, when we look at our record and we compare us with every other oil producing jurisdiction in the world, I would say that we come out ahead on so many measures. The fact that when the product is developed, the lion's share of the of the revenues are spread among all Albertans through the through royalties. It goes to fo to uh, support our education, healthcare systems, and every and all the other things that Albertans value. Some would say that's not a, the royalty ratio isn't quite enough. We have a, one of the highest cost industries, which is sort of the second part. Anybody can set up a company and operate within this within this market. It's not easy to do that in places where the resources are state-owned and where the benefits of it largely go to a dictator or a king and his immediate family. We also have a, a system in Alberta where when you look at our human rights record, whether it's our treatment of women or treatment of minorities, we embrace diversity. That does not happen in a lot of the other oil producing jurisdictions in the world. We don't use our resources to fund terrorism like they do in other oil producing jurisdictions in the world. And I would say if you put our environmental record up against the Sudan and Nigeria and Saudi Arabia and other countries like that, we would come out ahead hands down. They don't have an environmental movement that is pressuring them to do better and better and better in those places. We do, and I value that. I think it's important that we have that. But we also have to realize that we have to compare our record with reality and with our competitors, not with some utopia that is unachievable. So when you have the likes of Neil Young and Robert Redford slamming our industry, I would say that until Robert Redford is able to have his Sundance Festival and have 50,000 people come to Utah without spending, expending one molecule of carbon dioxide, that's when I will listen to him criticize our oil sands. We produce a product because people want it, consumers want it. So let's have a constructive conversation with consumers about how we might be able to reduce our overall footprint when it comes to environmental emissions, but let's do so in a way that recognizes that until we have some kind of replacement for hydrocarbon fuels, Alberta really is a low-cost, 
a responsible and an ethical supplier of the product and we should keep doing what we do. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think there's more to be said because the, the, the government has misled Albertans for years about the level of monitoring of uh, impacts downstream on, on the water. Uh, and it took David Schindler to uh, basically blow their their um, propaganda out of the water, literally. Uh, and they've now promised a world-class uh, water monitoring system, but we've yet to see it. Um, we need to do something about the tailings ponds. I think they need strict regulations to try and force the companies to reduce and eventually eliminate those tailings ponds. And we need to put real meaningful uh, limits on emissions. And if we do all of those things, um, then we'll be closer to the right balance. You're listening to the CJSR edition on 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. On this week's program, Brian Mason and Danielle Smith, leaders of Alberta's NDP and the Wild Rose Party respectively, go head to head in a debate of political philosophies. The catch, each leader wasn't able to hear the other person's responses, and we put the responses side by side. This is the CJSR edition. What do you foresee as the biggest problem facing Alberta today? The biggest problem is that we're not getting value for tax dollars. We are one of the highest spending governments in the, in the, in the country, and yet when you look at our social programs, our health care system is underperforming. The, the AHS has not been able to, to meet virtually any of our wait times. We continue to hear of frontline service cuts, even though it is one of the most expensive systems. We also are seeing now the impact of, uh, on the frontline in education. K-12 hearing of classes, over 40 kids. And I, I, don't, I certainly don't recall class sizes of 40 when I was in school. Even though we've seen more money going into education, and relatively slow increases in enrollment, somehow those dollars aren't getting down into the classroom. And then, of course, when you don't keep healthcare and education spending under control, the, um, the, the, the place that continues to get cannibalized is post-secondary, and we've seen this for probably the last 20 years, that it's the easy place for governments to, to find cuts, but it's also the, the worst place for them to find cuts. If you, the, the, the last thing that you want is to create an environment where students choose not to go to school because of the uncertainty of what it's going to cost them, the massive prospect of huge student loan debt and so there there needs to be a rebalancing if we can get value for money happening in those high cost items those high cost social programs it allows us to be able to ensure that we continue to appropriately fund across the board and that i, I think is a, a task for a new government i think that w when you have a government that's been in power for 42 years and you continue to see that they get out of balance that they uh, th that they take that they take the easy uh, route when it comes to finding cost efficiencies and when they continue to, to misprioritize. I just don't think that those get solved by changing the leader. I think you actually have to change the party if you're going to change the culture. I think the biggest problem is one you've already touched on and that is how do we resolve our financial uh, situation. We're an extremely wealthy and very prosperous province um, and yet we can't balance the budget and I think part of the reason as I've explained has to do with tax cuts that the Conservatives um, impose. We now spend for example 30% or 30% of our program spending in the province is paid for by non-renewable royalty revenue and the prices on that and the revenue from royalties are is very volatile and that's why when the price of oil goes down in this province we have to lay off teachers and nurses and we can do so much better than that uh, if we actually pay for our services from tax revenue take royalty revenue and put it away for future generations. Those resources belong not just to our generation. So for us to spend it on our health care and our education is wrong. We need to invest it for the future so that future generations can benefit as well as ourselves. Um, so we would invest uh, royalty income uh, much as Norway has done. They now have, I think, a $600 billion fund, massive fund, um, uh, and the interest from that is paying for all kinds of things. The standard of living in Norway has increased uh, substantially, and for all classes in society, not just for the wealthy. Uh, you know, I think the more conservative parties tend to be focused on, um, you know, cash today. In the face of a budget deficit this past spring, 
The progressive conservative government slashed $147 million of funding to post-secondary institutions. What would you have done differently? The approach that we have taken when we put forward our alternative budgets is that we think the real solution is to slow the rate of increase in operational spending and identify areas of low priority where you can redirect dollars to high priority areas so that you're, you're, you're making sure that you're protecting your front line. We also have to look at how we do our procurement for infrastructure because those are the areas where we're going to be able to find the, the greatest savings. I mean, when you hear projects that start off like a, a hospital project in Calgary, South Calgary Hospital, started off at a $500 million price tag. It's now well on its way to a $2 billion price tag. And now they've run out of money to hire nurses and doctors. You think, wow, there's something really wrong with that kind of approach. And as I said before, what it does is it ends up causing them to cannibalize. And it's post-secondary, which is the area that's been cannibalized. So let me say more particularly on that. W one of the things that we would have done is we would have uh, looked at post-secondary as one of those areas where you look at the baseline from last year and you increase it by a regular rate of inflation, one or two or three percent. The problem that we've seen in government spending is that they've been increasing at a rate of eight or nine or ten percent, which is clearly not sustainable. I'd also like us to see if there's a way for us to have funding follow the student to the school of their choice so that those schools that are being responsive to student need, responsive to the kind of programs that students want, are able to attract more resources to be able to fund those programs, rather than having arbitrary limits on how many students can be in what program and forcing uh, schools to make some tough decisions about slashing programs altogether in, uh, in a response to, uh, I think, a, a, an ill thought out. Uh, a program of the federal government or of the provincial government not to to to, uh, to give that that stable funding so th there are a couple of things that we can do in education I think that will mirror what we have seen done in K-12 that makes it more student focused that makes it um, allows for universities to benefit from that kind of creative competition and to provide some some long-term stable funding we, we certainly cannot put schools in the position that they were in last year where they were all expecting an increase. They had every reason to expect an increase. The government campaigned on an increase. They kept talking about an increase. And for there to be the kind of dramatic reductions that nobody saw coming has resulted, I think, in a, a, a lot of very painful um, decisions that have had to be made at post-secondary schools. And it's not fair. When you've got, when you've got a, a level of, uh, of service that is almost wholly reliant, or largely reliant on provincial government funding to be able to plan its programs out. You need to provide stability. You need to be able to give clear direction. You can't be making decisions on the fly. Absolutely, we would have increased post-secondary fund funding. But you know, the, the PCs are caught because they made very elaborate promises. They they promised about set by our maths about seven billion dollars in election promises, which was uh, like five million dollars more than we promised. And we had fully costed ours, and we had said how we were going to pay for it without borrowing money. So of course they're caught now with uh, with these massive pro uh, promises and no way to pay for it because they won't touch corporate taxes. What is the most important conversation that we are not having as Albertans that we should be having? I think that the big conversation is how do we remake our social services so that they actually deliver the support to the people who are most in need? How do we re-engineer our social programs in the same way that we've seen re-engineering of all kinds of different markets. We've seen that in the private sector, different industries have to constantly be thinking about how they change the way they do their business so that they can provide better service at lower cost. You see this in the nonprofit sector. It's very, very competitive in the nonprofit sector for those charitable dollars. And you're always seeing that they're trying to find ways to be able to reduce administrative costs and get more to the front line. It seems like that conversation doesn't even happen in government. There's a lot of lip service paid to it, but there hasn't really been any fundamental rethinking of how services are delivered since I think uh, Ralph Klein reformed the way education works. This notion that you would have different competing 
institutions, public Catholic, private homeschool, charter schooling, virtual schooling. You would empower parents to be able to choose the education they wanted for their children. You'd have funding following students to the school of parental choice so that it created a healthy creative dynamism. And you've, you've seen it happen in, uh, in Edmonton at the, at the uh, public schools here. They've become very parent responsive. They've created programs of choice. They've created innovation and magnet schools. And to me, that is the very best in how you can unlock that creativity in the public service. But it, uh, it was almost a, an experiment that got stalled out. We, we need to see that same dynamism in how we fund post-secondary, how we fund uh, our seniors programs, how we fund senior services in long-term care, health care, children's services. And I, I think that there has been a, a lack of that kind of creativity and innovation in the public sector, and I think we need to see it. Why, why aren't we having that conversation? I think it's because you've got the same guys in power for 42 years. If, if you are the guy who created a dud of a program 15 years ago, and now your political bosses come back and say, how's that program working out? You're not going to say, gee, did I ever make a mistake and we should cancel that program? There's a constant justification that happens. And th that doesn't happen in the nonprofit world or in the private sector world. In the private sector, private sector world, if something is clearly not working, you don't give it more money. You find some way of diverting those resources to something that is working. And I think that the, the the way government traditionally has been working in in Alberta is that there's been this attitude of we're so rich, let's just throw more money at it. If you can just throw enough money at a problem, someone's going to figure something out and we'll be able to get these services delivered. And you can go along with a false sense of progress for a long period of time when you have those huge dollars rolling in. But when the revenue projections don't pan out and then you have to start looking at gee how do we find a way to deliver these programs more cost effectively if you don't have the learning the creativity the innovation and that attitude of of, uh, of trying something new within your civil service then you end up making some big mistakes and I think they're making some big mistakes about where they're trying to find those those cost efficiencies and I think it's hurting people on the front line in the services that are being delivered and I think it's also hurting the people who rely on those services what is the greatest opportunity that Alberta has today that is not being capitalized on. Well, again, I think it's something that we've already touched on, and that and that has to do with uh, getting our uh, economy right, uh, making sure that we are upgrading the uh, bitumen here, that we're leaving uh, uh, a moderately clean environment for future generations, and that we invest for the future. And that means investing in alternative energy, but it also means investing in education, healthcare, and so on, investing in people. What do you say to a young professional or student who is uh, disenchanted with the current trajectory of the province? Vote NDP. Flat out. <laughs> We have to have a change in this province, and you know, you can if you vote for the Wild Rose, you're going to be jumping out of the frying pan right into the fire. So uh, we need a different direction. We need a progressive alternative um, that uh, will safeguard uh, our essential services, look after people, look after the environment, as well as maintain a prosperous economy. I would say that the generation of millennials is going to be absolutely crucial in changing the direction of government. In some ways, I just saw, heard over the last week that they are going to be as influential a generation as the baby boomers were before them. And so there is a, an, an incredible opportunity, I think, for young people to be able to put the priorities that they have onto the government agenda. And you can see it with, with apathy being an everybody problem. I know a lot of people think that it's a young, it's just young people who don't vote. That's clearly not the case. We have, in some cases, only 50 to 60% voters turnout. So there, there's an apathy problem that we have, and I think it's because politics has become less meaningful and relevant in people's lives. But you can see what can happen when uh, a group gets motivated, and things like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, a meeting online, and those kind of social networks have been influential in Mayor Nenshi's campaign in Calgary, in obviously uh, President Obar uh, Barack Obama's campaigns in the United States. And I, th I think that that is going to be a way of galvanizing people around ideas for the foreseeable future. So it's up to political parties to put forward 
interesting ideas and to be uh, to be putting forward ideas that will want people to engage. So I, I don't look at that as as uh, being entirely on the heads of of uh, of uh, the younger generation. I think that's on the heads of politicians to actually debate things that pe- that matter to people. Which is why Brian and I are doing these debates. We we figured that if we've been both he and I have been in debates, all party debates, where all it turns into is criticizing the government agenda. Neither of us find those debates all that meaningful. For us to be able to debate each other with a premise and he's able to say, here's what an NDP government would do, and I'm able to say, here's what a Wild Rose government would do. For us, that's meaningful as politicians, and I think it's a lot more meaningful to the audience. On a policy level, what, if any, is the common ground between the Alberta NDP and the Wild Rose Party. Well, I think we're fundamentally different in most ways. I would have to say, whether it comes to royalties or how you deliver health care, um, I think the Wild Rose and the NDP are, are opposite. And that's why I think the debate is going to be a lot of fun, because you're not going to have people just tr- trying to occupy some middle ground somewhere to see which way the wind blows. We're going to have two clear alternatives to battle it out, and I, and I think that that's a good thing. We have some areas where we, we have some commonalities. but We are both strong supporters of more openness in government and holding the PC government to account. Um, so we uh, we certainly do that, and uh, uh, you know uh, Danielle said this morning on an, in another interview another similarity is that we're both opposed to corporate welfare, and I know we are. We'll see what the Wild Rose actually does. I would say what <clears throat> what makes us similar, and this is something Brian said to me some time ago, which really resonated is he sees himself as a champion for the little guy, and we do too, which is why you will find that we have taken common cause on certain issues, like we both oppose corporate welfare, we both oppose the $2 billion for carbon capture and storage, we both oppose the the, the billions of dollars being uh, wasted on transmission lines that we probably don't need. We both want to see consumer-based approaches to encouraging people to adopt different type of technologies to reduce their environmental footprint. So those are some common things I think that we that we would have. I think we both agree that the government should, should live within its means. Where we differ is we believe the government can live within its means by prioritizing spending and not increasing taxes. <clears throat> I think Brian has been quite open about not only increasing taxes but also increasing royalties. We, uh, I think we also may disagree on, um, uh, on this notion of um, allowing for some competition and choice within a publicly funded system. That we've, we've often talked, for instance, about healthcare, and we believe that we sh- need, must honor the five principles of the Canada Health Act. We need to have a single-payer system, but why can't we allow for uh, private, not-for-profit, charitable, doctor-run, different types of surgical facilities to be able to compete for patients in the same way that this kind of healthy innovation has worked in in the uh, publicly funded education system. So we may have a difference of opinion there. I think he prefers the uh, monopoly being provided in in, uh, in different social services. I, I kind of believe that people need to have choice and you actually get a better system if you allow for innovation and choice. I think some people misconstrue my my position as being one that is pro-privatization and I, I, I would say that's not the case. I I do not believe that you benefit. The debate series that you are currently on is visibly lacking in two voices, that of Raj Sherman of the Alberta Liberals and also Alison Redford of the Progressive Conservatives. Is there any common ground that you share with these party leaders? I have said I will debate anyone, anywhere, anytime. I debated the Green Party leader, Janet Keeping, for instance, in Calgary over the weekend on the issue of pipelines. I I think we have to be realistic. Um, uh, Alison Redford does not show up to question period most days. The chances of her committing to a a seven debate series across the province was pretty well zero. And frankly, we have been in debates before where they send some backbencher with 24 hours notice who knows nothing about the issues and it's not a very meaningful debate. Uh, The other part too is if you only had the opposition leaders, then it could again turn into that dogpile on the government. So we we, we allowed the, the University of Calgary students when they put this together to put it together the way they thought made the most sense. And they just invited 
Brian and, and myself. And so after that, it was Brian who challenged me to a rematch. So I said, yes, it seemed to work and we'll see if this works. But if, if Raj wants to have a one-on-one -on -one debate with me, I will say yes. If the premier wants to have a one-on-one -on -one debate with me, I will say yes. Well, all parties have overlaps with things and we've supported the government on, on uh, some of their initiatives uh, to be sure. Um, certainly their, their plan to eliminate child poverty is something that we support, but we're also very critical because they're not following through. You know, it's just another promise. And uh, so there are some social directions that Redford has talked about that we're supportive of, but at the same time we are wary um, that um, the government may not intend to keep those promises. They've certainly broken many promises. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. This week's program was produced by Speaking Into Microphones and by me, Matt Hergy. We produced the show in the studios of CJSR FM 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Thank you very much today to Danielle Smith and Brian Mason. The CJSR edition is a spoken word project of CJSR FM 88.5. Thank you very much for tuning in.